Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn in West London. Hello, it's Richard Heller in South East London, where we bring the news that a very delayed English county cricket season will begin on the 1st of August in some form or other. We are anxious to share this news with our guest, who's very, very special to both of us today. He's very special to us because of his unique personal contribution to English cricket history. And that is uh, cricketer, author, publisher, Stephen Chalk. Hello, Stephen. I'm so pleased you're coming on this programme. In many ways, Richard and I both, I think, regard you as a sort of patron saint of what we try and do, to explore forgotten byways and celebrate the stories which are often neglected. And stories that ought to be told, as, yeah. as you've told many of them. Well, thank you very much, both of you. I'm a tremendous fan of this programme, and I think the word celebrate that you just used is something that comes through in everything in every podcast you've done so far it's got such an uplifting quality and and you sustain it so well so it's a privilege to be on it to be honest well thank you for those kind words Stephen um you were described in a profile quite recently as accidental author accidental publisher and Wisden rightly described you as the Alan Lomax of English cricket after the great American musicologist who um recorded thousands of uh, American folk singers and their memories. Stephen, for those of our listeners who were foolish enough not to have read Runs in the Memory, would you like to describe the scheme of that first book a little bit and um, how it led you to found Fairfield Books? Well, the concept of it was that I was going to go around the country, find cricketers of the 1950s, get them to choose their favourite match, tell the story of the match as a short story, interweaving their memories, both of the match, but also of the characters and the way of life, and have a set of chapters covering all the counties in the country as a portrait of a a lost world of English cricket before one-day cricket started, before so many of the changes that then took place in the 60s onwards. And um, I was very lucky. I met some fascinating characters on my journey, Arthur Milton, the last man to play both cricket and football for England, could have gone to Oxford University from grammar school, but signed for the Arsenal instead. Spent 25 years on the staff at Gloucestershire, and when he retired, became a postman. And by the time I rang him to interview him, he'd retired as a postman. And I I said, I'd like to come round. He said, come on Thursday. What time would I like to come? I said, nine o'clock. He said, oh, don't come that early. I've got three paper rounds to finish. (laughs) (laughs) The last man in England to have played football and cricket for England. Imagine the wealth he would have had if he were doing that 40 years later. And he was on this old post office bike going up onto the Bristol Downs, delivering newspapers to old ladies, saying they'd had interesting lives and he liked talking to them. And uh, he was contented and he had a completely different take on sport. He wasn't an easy man when he was young, but in as an old man, having looked back on his life, he had a take on things that was absolutely fascinating. And then I got to see Ken Taylor on a similar theme. I got sent up to Norfolk to see Ken Taylor, who was teaching art in a prep school in, in North Norfolk. 
and had all this artwork and he'd been to the Slade to study art. And while he was at the Slade, he was playing football for Huddersfield in the first division and cricket for Yorkshire, later for England, doing all three things at once. And Gosh. he came from a, quite a poor background. His father was out of work in the 30s as a mill worker in Huddersfield, shared a bed with his older brother till he was 11. And yet somehow he had this life. And his older brother had played football for Huddersfield and Fulham, studied a geography degree at London University and gone on to be an opera singer and professor of singing at Glasgow Academy of Music. Wow. Fabulous pair. And um, Ken wasn't an easy interview. Ken was a dreamer. He was an artist. He wasn't very articulate. And I later did a book with him. And I think one of the crowning glories of my time as a writer, Jeff's brother, who was a much more wordy sort of chap, had given a Radio 3 talk on the similarities between football and singing. And the talk had started with Maria Callas singing an aria, followed by commentary of Bobby Charlton scoring a goal. And he'd then spoken for 15 minutes about what was similar between the two activities. I put that on one side of the page and then get Ken talk to talk about the similarities between sport and art. And I rang up Ken. He said he'd think about it. I rang three days later and he said, I can't think of anything at all to say, and which was typical of Ken. But I didn't give up. I started probing him and he came out with the most fabulous material, just which he didn't realise was as good as it was. And it was all about concentration, how you've got to lose yourself in the activity. And he talked about the players who had it and the players who didn't. Gary Sobers had it. He was a completely natural player, and he so obviously enjoyed everything he did. You would think that Brian Close had it. He had so much ability, but he never achieved what his potential was, and that was probably because he lacked something in concentration. He could be distracted. Jeff Boycott was different. He had a great ability to concentrate, and he had a lot of talent, but I feel that he didn't let himself go into that other dimension. He was conscious all the time. And some of that stuff, and he went on with more in that kind. So interesting. And and fabulous. And and so modest. You would never imagine if you met him that he'd done anything of interest in his life. Never promoted himself at all. Observant of other people, too. Very good artist. Very good good illustrator of Mm. your first two books. Yes. The portraits of those other players. Fascinating. Vanished, aged footballer cricketers, as Peter was saying. Well, Philip Neville was the best young batsman Lancashire saw for 30 years. At the age of 15, he was playing for the second 11 and they thought he was an England player, but he couldn't do both. No. Gary Lineker was a very nice cricketer too. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of them actually. And even both of them might have been lost to football, you know, in the modern era. I'm, I'm thinking it's... Uh, Both of them played for Scunthorpe. Yeah, and he was a good player. Pub quiz pub quiz question that comes up. Name the three Scunthorpe players who went on to Captain England. I mean, it's, and you see, and Compton, for instance. Dennis Compton, I think nowadays, would have gone straight into football because he played for Arsenal too, like Arthur Milton. And there's no way he, Dennis Compton would have had a cricket career in the modern era, which explains why we, we have so many less of these great geniuses. Hutton, another good footballer, who would have been lost to um, the kind of the money bags of association football. I think we're lucky that Stokes was brought up in New Zealand because I, I have a feeling that he might have gone off into football if he'd been brought up in this country. Yes. 
Well, it was a fabulous journey for me, particularly the first book, because I knew nothing. I remember going for my very first interview with Martin Horton with somebody I didn't know and the nervousness I had about it. But of course, it meant I asked him all sorts of questions that I probably wouldn't ask somebody now and got him talking about all the players and Dennis Brooks at Northampton, living in the same house six doors down from the main gates at Wantage Road that he'd moved into in the 1930s. The dividing line between amateurs and professionals in those years was extraordinary to look back on. Some of the stories people told me, John Pretlove had been to Elaine's Public School and Cambridge University and went down to Kent as their so-called assistant secretary, a non-job that allowed him to play as an amateur, and played for the team. And when he first arrived, somebody took him aside and suggested that he become a member of the Band of Brothers, which was an exclusive Kent wandering team for just the right sort of chaps. So he filled in the application form and heard nothing. And five or six weeks later, he said to the chap, he said, um, the BB, I, uh, what's happened to my application? And the chap looked at him and he said, I'm sorry, he said, you were rejected. Only your father is in trade. <laughs> That's, in which this year the, was this? Which the year? 1950s? 56, something like that. <laughs> yeah, long after the Second World War, yes. <laughs> I think there was another story about them going to play at a golf club on, in Worcester at a, a weekend game, and um, none of the professionals were allowed in the clubhouse at the end of the game. Only Colin Cowdery could go in. Good heavens. The wonderful thing you did in those first two books is um, not only they bring these characters to life, but you actually brought the social context to life in which they were playing. So they really form a sort of social history of England over 20 years. And you do this by just a few details behind each match. You know, it might be advertisements, the stories in newspapers that were going on, even things like the price of a pint of beer. And you weave all these details in in a very colourful way. And it gives a great portrait of English social history. Don't be modest about this because it's a, a <laughs> it's a very artistic and creative achievement to to have done it in this way. I think it's a unique achievement. When I was at university studying history in the nineteen seventies, one of the coming things was oral histories, working class oral histories, and it seems to me you've brought a lot of the techniques of that school of historians. Tell us about the great Yorkshire bowler Bob Appleyard, who you got to know so well. That was quite a book to do because he hadn't done a book. I'd done the book with Geoffrey Howard. Geoffrey Howard had managed Hutton's tour of Australia and I'd become immersed in the story of that tour which looking back from the early 21st century when we hadn't beaten Australia for God knows how long, that tour of 54-5 of Australia was a high peak in English cricket. It had the men who were the main characters of the 40s, Len Hutton, Alec Bedser, Godfrey Evans, Bill Edridge, but it also had the new generation of Peter May, Colin Cowdery, Frank Tyson, Brian Statham. They were all there almost, except Freddie Truman, of course, who they didn't take, and Geoffrey was their manager. And, um, and there was this chap who topped the bowling averages, who'd never done a book, who had the most strange career, played his first full season in 1951, at the age of 27, took 200 wickets, missed two seasons ill, came back in 54, 150-odd wickets, and went to Australia and topped all the averages, and then disappeared out of the game quite quickly afterwards. Hell of a story. 
In fact, he took the 200 wickets with an advanced state of tuberculosis with no top half to his left lung. And he realised at the end of the summer, having been playing Saturday afternoon league cricket the previous year, that he didn't have the stamina for county cricket. So he spent all winter trying to get fitter and couldn't. And at the first game of the next season, went home ill and was told, you've got advanced tuberculosis. Not many years after streptomycin has been developed as a cure for tuberculosis, so it's still got a reputation as a deadly disease. He lay in bed for 11 months, had to learn to walk to, again. People said he had no chance of playing cricket again, but Bob was a steely character. And it was a tremendous story of triumph over adversity. But the real killer of it was that he told me in strict confidence the story of his childhood and said I was not to put it in the book. He had never spoken to his wife and children about it and he felt it would be a deep stigma on the family if he did so. And the gist of the story was that his mother walked out when he was eight or nine, well that much they knew. His sister died of diphtheria, that much they knew. And then on the day war was declared, Bob's father by then had remarried and had two small babies. Bob was sent to stay with his grandparents and when he came back to the house the next day, the four of them, father, stepmother and two babies, were dead in the bath with the gas on. Don't put it in the book. And that's the clue to his whole character. I've never told my wife, I don't want my children to know, I don't want the grandchildren to know. And I had to deal with that. And I, I wanted to put it in the book. My, my deal is always, if they say no, I don't do it. So I started the story at the point he made his debut for Yorkshire. I took him through his 200 wickets. I took him to the point he got tuberculosis diagnosed. I wheeled him into the operating theatre and I asked the question, what manner of man can come back from this? And then in whatever chapter it was, deep into the book, I told the story of his childhood and I sent it to him. And he said, I did ask you not to write this, but you've written it sensitively. I'll speak to my best friend about it. His best friend read it and said, you must put that in, Bob. He then spoke to the vicar at his church and he said, you must put that in, Bob. And then finally... He spoke to his two daughters. His wife, by this stage, had Alzheimer's. And he rang me to say, it's all right, you can put it in. They've known all along. He's been married for 50 years. And before he got married, his wife's mother had said, I think he's the lad whose father killed himself in his family. And she'd gone down the library, just as I did, read the inquest reports, and she'd known all through and he'd bottled it up for 50 years. And he said, it's all right, they want it to go in the book, you can put it in. And of course it was such a weight off his shoulders. It was a deeply therapeutic experience for him. He said, now you've written it down, it doesn't seem so bad. And everybody understood him better as a result of this. What made him such a feisty character? And um, I think that was something that, required a lot of sensitivity actually to to bring that book to fruition in the way it did and Bob's Bob 
had a reputation as being a bloody awkward character who fell out with people, notably Geoffrey Boycott, but others. But uh, I found him marvellous to work with. If, if you were on the same side as him, you couldn't have been looked after better by somebody. And, and the quality he had through his whole life, through repeated tragedies, his son dying of leukaemia, his first grandson dying of cancer, he picked himself and got up and got on all the time. And right to the end of his days, he did that. And I found him a very, very inspiring character, actually. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful book, Stephen, and it's, it's it's such an extraordinary story. You couldn't even you wouldn't think of it as you wouldn't think of that as a as a plot for a novel. It's, it's so it's just got so much tragedy. Stephen Brinkley wrote a review. He said, "When I picked the book up and I thought a biography of Bob Appleyard, I thought, why does anybody bother? And when I put it down, I thought, why on earth has it taken this long? There must be so many of that kind of story." which has never been told, of course. Yes, yes, there are. I'd love to have done far more books with far more people. You have to get a feeling of who's got a book in them. Tom Cartwright had a book in him, for sure. That was obvious from the first time I met him. You know, he had so much to say and said it so well about the social changes in our society. Let me read you just one short paragraph of Tom talking. You were talking about the way I capture a little bit of social history in places. This is Tom talking about life in the 1950s. There was much more of a rhythm of life then, a rhythm of going to work and coming home at the same time each day, a rhythm of learning a trade and progressing with it, a rhythm even in people's leisure pursuits, and it gave people good manners and a consideration for others. People had settled lives. They did things which were within their reach, going out into the country, doing the garden, spending a day at cricket. Now people are striving for things they can't attain. The structures break down and the natural rhythm is lost. I think that's wonderful. It's only a point of view, it's not the whole story, but just the way he says it's got rhythm and it makes you think differently about the world you're living in. And that's coming from a man who grew up in the car factories of Coventry, a man with tremendous principles and strong values. Tell us about Fred Rumsey, who another very distinguished, on the face of it, second-level cricketer, who you wrote a book about. Well, I didn't write it, actually. He wrote his own book and I published it. And uh, I didn't realise that. Yes. And um, he came to me quite late. And I think I'd got an image of him as being a heavy drinking fast bowler who liked a good life. And I don't think I'd realised the full extent of A, what he'd achieved in his life and B, the calibre of his character as a man. He'd grown up as a cockney in the East End of London, lived through the Blitz. After national service, he got a good job in business with Founds, the glove makers and was earning £2,000 a year, got sent to their offices at Worcester, was being lined up to manage a factory down in, in Somerset, and gave it all up to become a cricketer, and was earning about four or £500 a year. But at some point in the mid-60s, he thought it's about time the cricketers had a voice in the way the game is going, and single-handedly he typed out this sheet, which he still got, a letter to each secretary saying... When we next play you, can I have half an hour with your team and explain to them what I'm trying to achieve? 
and he went round each county on his own saying, I want to form a cricketers association, would you support it? And at the end of the second summer of his doing that, called a meeting in London, Jimmy Hill of the Footballers Association came along to spoke to them, one rep from each county, and they started the Professional Cricketers Association. And that's the beginning of what is now this very, very powerful and good-doing organisation. And the first task he had was to um, negotiate a pay rate for the Sunday League. So in the summer of 68, the MCC were planning to introduce a Sunday league so that the cricketers would now have to play on Sundays as well. And they offered the players, I think it was £200 extra on their contracts to play Sundays. And Fred's got a lovely story of being on the field at Gravesend, I think, playing for Somerset. And he gets called off. He's bowling at the time. And he gets called off as uh, Billy Griffiths at the MCC wants to speak to you. And he said, we've decided to offer you £200. He said, no. He said they wanted £400, which was £25 a match to play Sundays. <laughs> and, he said, and they offered 200 He said, it's not acceptable. And Billy Griffiths was very resistant. And he called back off a second time and they put the offer up. And he said, <laughs> we said, and we said 400 <laughs> And by this time, Bill Alley's saying, oh, for God's sake, stay off. And, and the third time he had to go <laughs> off and they said, all right, it's 400 but we think you're being very unreasonable indeed. And uh, that's what he did at the beginning. And, and then the second thing he did is he pioneered the introduction of sponsorship and commercial money coming into the game. He was the first ever public relations officer when he did one winter at Somerset, off his own back, you go and do it, pay your own salary and give us what's left over, and then went to take that job full-time at Derby subsequently. So he was a pioneer of that as well. And not everybody at MCC liked that. They thought it was bringing vulgar money into the game. And he wasn't the flavour of the month at Lord's. <laughs> and then subsequent to that, he set up this wonderful travel company where he established this terrific cricket tournament in Barbados that were ran for over 30 years, and even was the founder of the Inter-Island Football Tournament in the Caribbean. So, incredibly intelligent man, a really good businessman, who hasn't had anything like the recognition for what he did in the game that he should have had. So he comes to me at the age of 80 saying he's writing a book, takes it incredibly seriously, like everything else, he writes well, but it's very important record for the history of the game to have that set down in that way. Perhaps you could take us briefly through the story of the accidents that led to the foundation of Fairfield Books. Well, I think basically I became a cricket writer because I was a pretty poor cricketer. And um, at the end of 1993, when I was 45 years old, I'd had a bad season and I thought of retiring. And as you both know... It's a terrible thing to stop. Uh, there's so much friendship, so much fun in cricket, even when you're not a great player. I was working in adult education where the mantra was, you're never too old to learn. So I went in search of some coaching that winter and found myself going to see Ken Bidolph, a Somerset bowler of the 1950s and early 1960s. I got there just before four o'clock and there he was in his Somerset blazer and whites, tall erect man with wavy silver grey hair, 
Good news, Stephen. There's no one in after us till six o'clock. Two hours of my own bowling and batting. And um, at the end of it, with my shirt damp on my back, we went upstairs onto the balcony. And I then had another hour and a half of him telling stories of his days as a county cricketer. And I was utterly enchanted. He was talking about all the people who, as a small boy, had watched Freddie Truman and Frank Tyson, Colin Cowdery, Roy Marshall, Bill Alley. And he brought them all to life as people. It felt like I was out in the middle with him, just as that was what I loved so much about cricket, the characters of the players and the situations that develop. And and he had such a wonderful way of telling these stories. And I went to these nets for four years, and after every session I'd stay there for hours afterwards listening to these stories. And uh, that, I suppose, is the beginning of it. What's fascinating, I think, to both Peter and me is that you've discovered the, if I could put it this way, that the real magic in the history of cricket is not so much in the memories of the great players, but it's the memories of the players you might think of as journeymen. You're quite right. When I started my first book, I I didn't have any preconceptions about who I would interview. And Ken recommended Martin Horton at Worcester. And Martin Horton recommended Harold Rhodes. And Harold Rhodes recommended Ken Taylor. And that's how I went round the country. From commercial reasons, I should have done Fred Truman and Trevor Bailey and people of that ilk. But I, I was much more enchanted by that second string of people who had gone out of the spotlight, who had so many observations about the game they played, about the way of life, and about the characters they played with. Ken was... Ken Bidolf was an immensely observant character. You could ring him up about any cricketer and he'd have something interesting to say about them. Well, I have to say that I found your books enormously valuable in researching some of my own books. It's most interesting. I mean, for instance, your account of Geoffrey Howard contained that enormously important scoop which, of course, you didn't present as... You just allowed Geoffrey to tell you, didn't make a great deal of it, but it was enormously significant that, that Forster's office in South Africa rang up Surrey County Cricket Club within hours of um, Basil D'Oliveira scoring that century at the Oval in the final test in 1968 and said, if the coloured player gets selected for England, the tour is off. The, the, the importance of this is that Tini Oosterhuizen, who was on this occasion ringing up from the Prime Minister's office, he also earlier had tried to bribe Oliveira himself not to go on the tour, make himself unavailable. And so this shows the direct South African involvement. Oliveira refused the bribe and said, no, I'm going if I get selected. Unfortunately, and to its eternal shame, the MCC allowed themselves to be threatened and manipulated by South African government. And they didn't choose Oliveira. And so the tour, and that led later to the cancellation of the tour. Uh, and Geoffrey Howard ended up as secretary of Surrey County Cricket Club and or was the coach of the uh, England team which went to Pakistan in England A team in 1956, which got involved in the kidnapping of Idris Beg, the Pakistani umpire. Well, Idris Beg, you probably know more about this than I do, Peter. Uh, he was... A bit of a showman as an umpire, I think, was Geoffrey's view. He said to Geoffrey on one occasion, they come to see me umpire. And um, they had run into the usual English perception of Pakistani umpires, that they weren't giving decisions that they wanted. And um, at the same time, being youngsters in a foreign country where 
there wasn't a lot for them to do. They'd got into a lot of japes involving water pistols and throwing water at each other and climbing up into trees and throwing water over each other. And that was the way they were passing their time. And then on this particular occasion, they got hold of his drist bag, took him, sat him down, and then poured two buckets of water all over him. And I think initially he saw the funny side of it and joined in the fun. But I think A.H. Carter, the Pakistani captain, and by then quite a senior figure in Pakistan cricket, didn't see the funny side of it and felt it was an abuse of the Pakistani people. And, and the incident blew up massively in a way that Jeffrey then as manager had to deal with. And um, I think that's the nub of it. Well, what was very lucky was that the governor general, as he then was, General Iskander Mirza, who'd been a superb cricketer himself when he'd been at Sandhurst and had served on the northwest frontier by an enormous stroke of good fortune with Field Marshal Alexander. So they knew each other very well and understood each other. They mobilised to stop basically the MCC team being thrown out of Pakistan and sent back to England just because of the, the diplomatic good sense of these two very, very distinguished men, uh, uh, heroic men in their different fields. Quite a lot of the players actually behaved quite disgracefully uh, and they were uh, getting in, uh, involved in territory which they had no idea what they were doing. Fair comment, yes. Stephen, one of your most important and one of your most um, delightful books to read is your history of the county championship, Summer's Crown, which combines colourful detail with... Um, rigorous analysis and you're welcome to quote that but just wondered two things first a topical question what do you think of the idea of a, a county tournament a first class county tournament that begins in august do you see any point in it not one for the championship no i think they should play some games and uh, and, uh but i i don't think you could stage a, a meaningful championship with champions at that stage of the summer so no i don't think this year it's going to happen it's um, one of those blips in the long history of the tournament, of which there have been many blips over the years. There have been blips, but it's been extraordinarily durable, hasn't it, as a competition? Considering that some counties don't even exist anymore, like Middlesex and um, Glamorgan doesn't really exist anymore as an administrative unit, it's, um, it's been extraordinarily durable, hasn't it, in spite of the blips and the changes they keep introducing? Yes, I think it was fundamentally unsound from day one, actually. Um, <laughs> it started off... That's an interesting comment. What, what makes you say that, going back to those Victorian <laughs> yes. worthies who founded it? What did they get wrong? It had a boom in the 1880s when county cricket became more popular than the international games that were played. And everybody was keen to know whether Surrey or Nottinghamshire were the best county. And it got formalised in 1890 into a proper tournament with eight counties. And it had that little period of popularity that it had swollen to 14 counties by 1895. Worcestershire came in in 1899. Northamptonshire came in in 1905. And suddenly it was a completely unwieldy tournament with far too many teams, far too many matches, nowhere near enough people watching, not enough money to sustain it all. So that by the time you get to the, the outbreak of the First World War, Gloucestershire and Worcestershire are on the verge of packing up and not entering a team the following year. 
And then it gets revitalized after the war. People flock back to the games because they've been deprived of sport. But by the end of the 30s, it's, it's, it's in a parlous state again. And MCC in 1937 did a, a report in which they said in, in a bad year, only Kent, Middlesex and Yorkshire would remain solvent and not reliant on, on raising money by other means. And then by the sixth, again, after the Second World War, it had a boom, and then it died away again. And then you had this extraordinary period in the 1960s when uh, all sorts of reforms were made. Cricket has this image of being slow to change, but in many ways, it was the sport that changed most and most quickly. It introduced one-day games, which were a completely different form of cricket. It started playing on Sundays. I think it was almost the first sport to break with the Lord's Day Observance Society and start having matches on Sundays. It introduced commercial sponsorship and then this great change where it allowed overseas players to come in without qualifying. And all these things took place in very quick time in order to revitalise the game. So it, we should be careful of saying that the county championship is a traditional tournament that's always being the always been the same and it recently has been mucked around with because in my experience studying this book it's been endlessly mucked around with throughout its entire history and has never really been a viable competition attracting sufficient crowds to pay for itself well, certainly. When I began watching it in the 50s and 60s, you never seemed to have the same point-scoring system, you never seemed to have the same playing conditions and, and so on. It was always tinkering. Yes, well, I think there was, there was an occasion in the 1960s when the counties actually voted not to make any further changes for three years. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't even stick to that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, one theme that comes out of your book, your early books, is um, county cricket in the 50s and 60s is there are very few non-white players because it basically took them, I suppose, such a long time to qualify under the then regulations. And then you get a great influx with the overseas players coming in of um, West Indies, uh, West Indians and, um, and Pakistanis. And then in the 70s, start at the end of the 70s, you get the first British-born black players coming in and making a big contribution but I just wondered if you had any thoughts on the present complaints by black cricketers that county cricket is now underrepresentative of um, non-white players, and uh, if you had any thoughts on the, the causes of this and how to deal with it, if it's true. Well, I think I'd want to separate the experience of people of Afro-Caribbean heritage from people of the Indian subcontinent heritage. I think there's a serious problem among Afro-Caribbeans that they have lost the passion for cricket that they had. And there aren't as many people of West Indian heritage playing the game in this country. And that needs addressing. I think of that Haringey Cricket School that Reg, Reg Scarlett ran in the 1980s, where in one little London borough, he took people young people and trained them up as cricketers and produced Mark Lane, who became captain of Gloucestershire mm -hmm. and MCC head coach, Keith Piper, the Warwickshire keeper, who was as good a keeper as any in the country, the Rollins brothers. Mm -hmm. a just one little place produced those cricketers, uh, all of Afro-Caribbean heritage. So that needs addressing to put the passion back into the game and, and the decline of the West Indies team is not helping that. I think the issues with people from the Indian subcontinent are probably different. 
because the passion is still there. Some of their cricket is played a little separately from mainstream club cricket, and I think that's an issue in terms of pathways. But there are pathways problems for a Fred Truman of today. I mean, Fred didn't play cricket at school. Fred came from a very, very rough family, and yet he migrated into cricket in South Yorkshire in the 1940s. And I don't think somebody of that nature, given the structure of how cricket is played now, would necessarily find themselves playing cricket. So I think there are all sorts... I mean, if you look at the people at the top of the English game, a disproportionate number of them have been to independent schools or learnt their cricket overseas. There are not enough people coming out of the homegrown population playing it. And, and that's to do with how you get into cricket and how people fall in love with the game and want to play. But there is, this week, you should mention, Surrey's head have appointed a new head coach, haven't they? Vikram Solanke. Indeed. Very good point. Worcestershire. Ex-Worcestershire. Very important point about pathways, because one of the things that strikes me about your books on the 50s and the 60s is, you know, how many cricketers get into cricket without, you know, the aid of academies, without the aid of of outreach schemes and this, that and the other. They get in because they've played at school or they've played at clubs, you know, or in some cases they've knocked their way in by, by sheer ability. But it does seem to be, county cricket certainly seems to be more open to um, the general population or perhaps more appealing to it than it is now. Well, it certainly was more popular, cricket as a sport. Cricket was on a level with football. I've interviewed people who said cricket was the in-game more than football. People wanted to be cricketers in those days when the alternative was working down a mine or in a railway goods yard or in an office becoming a cricketer, playing outside, being paid to play cricket all summer in the sunshine, even for a small sum of money, it was a very attractive way of life. And and, and I think now there are so many more alternatives open to people, aren't there, in terms of what they do with their lives. And I think cricket, for all sorts of reasons, doesn't have the same hold on the popular imagination of people in this country and actually, the people who have still the greatest passion for it are people of Indian and Pakistani heritage. One figure I read, they supply 30 to 40% of all the recreational cricketers in England at the moment. And that's, you know, in proportion to what, eight, I think it's 8% of the British population is, is of Asian origin. Dolly. Now, Stephen, you're working recreating the, the history of cricket by long conversations over weeks and weeks, months and months on end. Richard and I have tried to do a little bit of this, in, in Richard in particular, in Pakistan. What's your advice? What, how would you like this, your project to be taken forward? Well, I'm not unique. Other people have done it. Pat Murphy, who I have a terribly high regard of, mm. wrote a terrific mm. book with Tiger yeah, yeah. Smith before, uh, when he, Tiger Smith was about 90, all about how he was playing before the First World War, and this book was being written in the 1970s. So there are other people who've done it, and I think there's more of it now than when I started. And during this lockdown, some of the counties have been interviewing players and creating some of this work in order to fill the gap. I think the thing I would like most is if somebody created some structure in which some of this was kept together in some way and organised. I would love to have worked for the last 20 years in a setup where I was feeding into some something bigger that people had set up. Yorkshire actually got very good at it for a while. They employed me to interview 10 or a dozen of their former players in hour-long filmed interviews. 
and they're now part of their museum archive and uh, I, I thought that was a really excellent project that all the counties should be doing really. I mean there's a, at the start of the Geoffrey Howard book I put a quote from Alan Bennett which always I thought came close to what I believe. Alan Bennett wrote anyone of any distinction at all should on reaching a certain age be taken away for a weekend at the state's expense formally interviewed and stripped of all their recollections and <laughs> I, it would be lovely if um, more of this work was done. You need patience, it takes time. I think a lot of the best material I've got has come for sit from sitting long hours with people, not rushing them, not needing to do an interview in half an hour and get it off to the paper, but sitting quietly hours on end and suddenly some little nugget will come out and you think, wow, that's a gem. So you need to set up structures where people have got the time to do that and get close enough to people because that's part of it, being close to people. I haven't mentioned Mickey Stewart because I did a book with him and I, Mickey is now the man with the greatest knowledge of the English game over the whole post-war period of anybody alive and he's still up to date with it all and he was in danger of not having his testimony recorded and that would have been a tragic loss to the English game. Very thoughtful man, steeped in the game. We should interview him. We should. Yes, you should. MJ Stewart. Very good suggestion. A very good, very good idea. Yeah, I mean, he's very good on some of the invisible things that you take a while to get to. One of the things is, it seems silly to say it in a way, but cricket in my lifetime, cricket since the war, has become much more about winning than it used to be. Uh, that may not be so much true in Yorkshire, but I think club cricket in the south of England, and even some of the county cricket, it was about batting and bowling and testing your skills against other people. The one-day game introduced a much greater emphasis on winning, and uh, I think that's had all sorts of repercussions through the game. So you look back at games and you think, oh, that wasn't a very good... Tom Cartwright always thought his debut test when Australia scored 600-odd and then England scored nearly 600 at Old Trafford, Bobby Simpson got 300, was a wonderful game of cricket. Now we would see that as being a complete waste of time and a dreadful game. But at the time, he didn't see it like that because I think the perception of what a game of cricket was was invisibly slightly different. Stephen, I fear we've got to wrap up there. We could have gone on for many more hours. It's been wonderful having you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, we very hope that your legacy of uh, oral history of cricket will be carried forward. And perhaps this programme will inspire others to do with that. And you certainly inspired us. Thank you very much. It's been an honour to talk to you, sir. It's been a pleasure to be on your programme, which I've been recommending to everybody. It's a super programme. Keep it going as long as you can. Thank you so much for joining us. Goodbye from me, Richard Heller. And goodbye from me, Peter Oborn.